think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. All right, we are back again, and I am here to tell here this week to tell you that God is still king, even if you think you are. And you may be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I have everything you've ever said memorized. First of all, get a life. Second of all, you go, but that was the same thing you told me last week. And the answer is, yeah, yeah, it is, because we didn't finish last week. I insanely thought in the limited amount of time that we, well, that I set aside for this, <clears throat> I mean, you can listen to this in whatever chunk you want, but I have other things to do in the world, so in the limited time that I have set aside for this, I thought I was going to get through all the first kings, and I got through Solomon. Well, Solomon and his kids, so... <sighs> My bad. Sorry, guys. Try to figure this out as we move a little forward here. Um, when last we left our intrepid Israel, remember what we're trying to do here. We're trying to to see how our Bible unfolds and to see the... Uh, the wisdom of God and how we think through this place in that, so in Scripture. So as this has unfolded, David, who was the king for conquering, the one who accomplished as much as Israel would ever accomplish for Israel, what they failed to do in Joshua's time and in the time of the judges, which is to drive out the enemies and secure the nation. David accomplishes this, turns over a peaceful, blessed nation to Solomon. Solomon, because he does not need to be a man of war, is enabled to be a man of wisdom. He rules well. He writes well. Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs... He becomes a wise, good king who then forsakes his wisdom for the sake of worldly gain and worldly venture and falls into idolatry who does not, similar to his father before him, does not disciple his children well. But unlike his father before him, we don't have any good evidence of him preparing the next generation outside of the writings of Scripture. Now, I would argue that those writings should have been sufficient and demonstrate a man who is thinking well on his life and realizing where he has gone astray and fallen short. And yet, <clears throat> what ends up happening so often? This is one of those things we've got to be aware of, Christian. Too, too often, those who we are discipling and those who follow after us do a really good job of doing as we do and not as we say which is why it's important that we apply what we say not just to their lives, but to our lives as well. So, Rehoboam has been made king, son of Solomon. He is a nitwit, so he is cast aside by the ten northern tribes. And I just like flew past my spot and, and lost it. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. In other words, because Rehoboam is not acting wisely, because he is not acting in the interest of the people of God, he is going to rule over his father's house and nothing more. So the ten northern tribes depart. Israel departed to their tents, and as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. So Rehoboam learns his lesson, right? King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor of all Israel, and stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. <sighs> 
Rehoboam hasn't learned. He did not repent. He just hides. And we are, of all nations now, most miserable. So, it came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. So, you end up with the same issues, but here's the thing. If you're the northern now kingdom of Israel, by what standard are you finding a king? Because we've seen what happens when you go by the earthly standard for a king. This was the entirety of the reign of Saul. It ends, how should we put this? Poorly. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the king will return to the kingdom, will return to the house of David, if this people go up and offer sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. And the heart of this people will return to their Lord. So, in other words, just like Saul, who is kind of the patron saint for the kings of Israel, just like Saul was more worried about his reputation and his name and his power than he was God and how he how to rule his people well. Jeroboam does the same thing. If these people keep going down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice, they're eventually going to try to reunify this nation. I'm going to be without a throne, without a kingdom to rule. So, can't have that. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was staying by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born in the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart in ashes, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. When the king heard the the saying of the man of God, when he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given word from the Lord. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in the place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread. So Jeroboam gets a good warning here, doesn't he? By the way, the prophet ends up being disobedient. Won't go eat with Jeroboam, but listens to another prophet who said, Well, God told me you should come have dinner with me. And then you see the prophet killed by God. Now, here becomes the fun. Why is this lesson in your Bible? Upon whom will our lives and houses be built? See, Jeroboam is building it upon worship as he deems fit. The prophet listening to the word of the Lord, quote-unquote, as he deems fit. Both are punished. The answer, Christian, is that we are to worship according to what Exodus and Leviticus teaches us. Not how we seem fit, see fit, but how God sees fit. This becomes the issue moving forward. Throughout the history of Israel and throughout the checkered history of Judah, you see this pull between the world and Yahweh for the hearts of the people and the kings. And you see the world winning. Why? Because they are not 
anchored in holding themselves. They have forgotten that it is God upon whom we are dependent, God who is the Savior, God who is the judge, God who is the preserver, God who is the accomplisher, God who is the sanctifier, and they are walking in anything other than themselves. So you see this. Fast forward to 14. At the time... Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick, and Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now and disguise yourself so that they will not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there who spoke concerning me that I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. And Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. The Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire. I'm coming to inquire you concerning your son, for he is sick. You shall say thus and thus to her. It'll be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. So when Ahijah heard the sound of the feet, <coughs> excuse me, coming to the doorway, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. Go, say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord of God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. You have not been like my servant David who kept my commandment and who followed me with all his heart. Now, note here. <clears throat> How did David follow God with all his heart? By being perfect? No. By being repentant. By trusting in God to be savior and judge. You saw this at the end of David's life with the census. What would you rather have? Would David rather fall into the hands of men or the hands of God? The answer was the hand of God, because with God there is mercy, there is supplication, there is salvation. With man there is nothing, there is death, there is anger, there is retribution. The trust should be about God. That's what separates David from Jeroboam, not the action, the motivation behind the action. David is a picture of the Christian who has fallen into sin. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, all the kings that do not walk in the ways of their father David, all of those kings are kings who have enjoyed, wallowed, sought after their sin. There's a difference, and the difference is the desires of the heart of the individual. So, warning against <clears throat> Jeroboam. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother name, mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all their fathers had done with the sins that they committed. For they built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every hill and every and beneath every luxuriant tree. In other words, we have problems. We have idolatry. The, the seeds sown by Solomon in his life are coming to fruit and coming to bear fruit and blossom in the life of his son. So what do you get? You get judgment. Shishak comes in, defeats. The gold shields are taken out of the temple. Israel is humbled. Why? Because they're exalting themselves and forgetting God. Remember, this was, this was everything that Moses was warning them in Deuteronomy. Don't walk another way. 
God has chosen you. God has placed you. God will judge. Remember, you can walk in the salvation of God, and he will preserve you in that. But the scary thing is he will also preserve his people in judgment. He will preserve them in such a way that his mercies will be shown to those who love him, and his anger and wrath will be shown to his enemies, and it will be seen in everything. So what ends up happening? In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother name, mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. Let's, let's summarize this. He's evil. We have a problem. He's going to die. Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa became son, his son became king in his place. Now, we have with Asa, not evil. He actually takes out the cult prostitutes. He takes out the idols. He even removes the king's mother, Ma'akha, which, with, did I read that correctly? His grandmother? I mean, this is an issue for the people. Why are we establishing these offices? Because we're honoring the wrong things. We're honoring the things that are problematic. So there's war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming into Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and gold which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries in the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabraman, the king, the son of Hezion, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus. No! See, Asa's a good king, but even the good kings have problems, don't they? Should we be buying off Ben-Hadad? No. No, we shouldn't. We should be trusting in the work of God and the faithfulness and the things that come from his hand. This is part of the difference here. If you are Judah, you now have a good king. But you've had Solomon sliding down the hill. You had Rehoboam wallowing in the muck and the mire. You had, oh, I'm not Abijah, I'm looking at my wrong thing. Yeah, Abijah. We had Abijah in Israel and we had an Abijah in Judah. This is where it gets really confusing. Sorry, I've got to double-check my notes here. So you had Abijah doing the wrong thing. There are going to be worldly consequences to this. So with Asa, you have a good king. Does that mean everything is going to be wonderful and everything is going to be hunky-dory in the first generation? And the answer to that is no. There are consequences to sin in this world. Are we saved by God and freed from the power and presence of sin? Yes. Does that mean it's gone away and the consequences for sins previously committed have gone away? No. The trick is dealing with our past sins, dealing with the failures of the generations that have come before us, and doing so in such a way that honors God, recognizing that he will preserve us or will not preserve us, but that either way, when we get to the end, that he is our savior and no longer our judge whose wrath is abiding. That's the difference. Now, you end up with Baasha in Israel. Um, he's not a good guy, and you end up with the judgment against him that was promised against the promised against Abijah, or promised to Jeroboam because of the prophecy sought from Abijah that Ahijah had said that he would be wiped out, and you see that. But now the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with your sins. Gets news. 
It's not any better. So, you ready for your rapid fire? You get Baasha sleeps with his fathers and he's buried as Tizra. Elah, his son, became king. The word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hananiah, also came against Baasha and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger, and the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam. And he was struck. In the 26th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and reigned two years. His servant Zimri, commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him. Now he was at Tizra, drinking himself drunk, and you don't need the story. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha through the through Jehu the prophet. So you get God promising judgment and wrath. You get judgment and wrath, but does God leave the guilty unpunished? By no means. Now the rest of the acts in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days at Tizra. I'm sorry, Terza. I keep saying Tizra. I'm sorry, Terza. Now the people were camped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the people who were camped heard it, saying, Zimri has conspired and also struck down the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri the commander of the army king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri... Omri and all Israel went up from Gibbethon and besieged Terzah, and when Zimri saw the city was taken, he went into the citadel at the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire, and he died. <sighs> so again, you get judgment from God. So, in a nutshell, I will spare you. You can read. The, the punchline here is Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab is the problem. Ahab is an interesting character and not a good guy at all. Thus begins the life and teachings of... You guessed it. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You get a nice, long, extended narrative here. Elijah is provided for by God. Elijah is allowed to do miraculous things by the power of God. He brings upon Israel by his word the judgment of God. And because Ahab is literally the worst of the worst. <clears throat> Excuse me. If David is the archetype and the standard for the good kings, Ahab is the archetype and the standard for the bad kings. Thus you get this slowdown. You also get the Mount Carmel showdown in chapter 18, which again, have some fun and read that because Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal. Elijah goes out of his way to make this an impossible task, and yet God does what? Proving himself to Israel. Because again, notice what the problem is. God has preserved Israel all this time. We're now using technical terms. Israel is the northern kingdom as opposed to the southern kingdom, Judah. God has preserved Israel for judgment, but also because they are his people. And there is still a faithful remnant. What God is doing is proving himself to the leadership so that the worship will be restored. The nation was split because God allowed it to be split. Worship was never supposed to be split. The Israelites were still supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. The Israelites were still supposed to be engaged in the offering of the sacrifices at the temple daily. The Israelites were still supposed to be about the celebrations and the festivals because those things transcend governmental authority. Those things transcend family dispute. They are pointing to the eternal work of Christ and how he is redeeming and has redeemed his people.
So you get this proving of Yahweh through Elijah, and then you get the fear of Elijah as he goes and hides because Jezebel wants him dead. And again, you want to have some fun. Read chapter 19 because it's one of my favorite things. So this is where you get the the promise of those who have not bowed the knee to Baal that that uh, Paul quotes later on in Romans. So Elijah's hiding, and God's almost laughing at him because there's nothing for Elijah to be afraid of because what's going on? God is going on. Who preserved Elijah during the drought? Who preserved the widow's son? Who preserved the oil and the flour? Who preserved the nation? Who has preserved Ahab? Who has preserved Jezebel? The answer is God. Do you you really think that if something happens to Elijah, that one, God could not protect him, and two, that God would not have another testimony, another witness? That's part of the lesson of this. It is God who is at work because it is God who is over everything. So rather than Elijah being comforted for his sin, he's tasked with work. Why? Christian, it's not God's job to comfort you in your distress and your sin. If you're distressed because of your sin, it's God's job to smack you one and set you back on the right path. It is your job to repent and walk faithfully. And that's what you see here with Elijah. You were caught doing something stupid. Okay, now what? Well, let's go do the right thing again. Let's get back on track. Let's get back to what we are supposed to do. So Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered his army, and there were 32 kings with him and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Punchline. God will deliver Ahab, not because Ahab is good, but because Ben-Hadad misunderstands God. Ben-Hadad thinks that God is only God in certain places and not in others, whereas we already know from our foundations that Yahweh is God everywhere. Once again, why do this for Ahab? Why do this for Israel? Because it's a proof. When Ahab falls into his sin and is judged by God and sent to hell, literally, he will have no excuse. He will have seen the testimony. He will have seen the greatness and the goodness. He will have seen the proof. He will have lived it. And he will be, amongst all men, most miserable because he will be without excuse, as Romans uh, Romans puts it. So behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Ahab said, By whom? So he said, Thus says Yahweh, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. And he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he answered, You. And he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel, 7,000. They went out at noon, and while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with the 32 kings who helped him, the young men of the rulers of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out and told them and said, Men, have you come out from Samaria? And they said, If they had come out for that place, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. So these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and the army which followed, and they killed each man, with the, and the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out, struck the horses and chariots, and killed the Arameans with great slaughter. In other words, God delivered because of his promise. Ahab should have understood that, feared the Lord, returned to the right worship of Yahweh, instead came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. 
Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard that is in its place. If, um, if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into the house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you're not eating? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, and he said, Give me your vi-, and I and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in his place. Ow, sorry, I just smacked my microphone. It hit me, trying to scratch my ear. Such fun. Jezebel said to Jezebel his wife said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. No good can come from this. Um, always pay attention to details in Scripture. Like, don't you know by now that uh, Jezebel is Ahab's wife? Yes, you know that. So why does it keep pointing out that Jezebel, his wife, said, because you have done this and listened to the voice of your wife. Sound familiar, Christian? Yeah, that's Genesis 3 in action. What are you supposed to listen to? Not be, now no, look, husbands, I didn't tell you to ignore your wife. I said when your wife gives you dumb advice that violates the precepts and commandments of God, then you ignore your wife. Jezebel is going to give sinful advice and do sinful things. Ahab is going to listen to the voice of his wife and not fear the Lord first and foremost. Therefore, bad things are going to happen. <sighs> the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up, the, lick up your blood, even yours. Dun, da, da, da. Chapter 22 goes in. Ahab goes into war against Aram. He's killed. Micaiah, pro, prophet of Yahweh, prophesies the defeat, prophesies the death. Ahab is killed. And everybody goes home happy, right? No. <laughs> you then get Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah as kings of Israel and Judah, respectively, and that leads us into 2 Kings, which is where we will have to pick up next week. Now, again, what's the point of all this? The point of all of this is simple. We have commands. We have things that we are supposed to be doing from God. There is a constant and strong pull from the world that says, ignore all of those things and go a different direction. Christian, we can't. We can't go a different direction. Why? Because we're supposed to be living recognizing the reality of the world. And the reality of the world is it's not my wisdom, it's God's. It's not my creation, it's God's. It's not my salvation, it's God's. It's my sin that he will judge. It's his grace provided through the work of Christ, not my goodness. And far be it from me to do anything other than walk in that. Because if I do, not only do I move into the realm of judgment, but I forsake the wisdom and blessings of God and I exalt myself as king of creation. That is simply not true, and it is not the reality of things. Now, second lesson. Didn't you want one of these kings smited already, for crying out loud? And yet the mercy and patience of God, demonstrating the reality of sin, 
demonstrating his patience and demonstrating his work that there are still 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is still a temple in Jerusalem where sacrifice should be made. There is still a priest who is longing for the day when the right sacrifices are returned. There are still going to be kings in Israel who will understand and follow faithfully. Christian, as we live in this world, we have to live in it really. And what I mean by that is we have to understand what the foundations of this world are and why they operate the way that they do. Meaning, we don't follow along with the world. We stand apart from it and we stand against it because as the world continues on in its sin, it is under judgment. But we, by the grace of God, are under mercy. And it is because of that that we can stand. And it is because of that that we are good. Not anything else. Therefore, we can be strong and we can be courageous and we can trust that no matter what happens in this place, God is still in command and we can walk as he has ordained that we should. So what have we learned here today, children? God is always in control. God will always have a witness and the world always moves on God's schedule, not our own. So, Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Hopefully we have some more stuff for you this week. Hopefully this is making sense and a blessing to you to help you think through how do I understand my Bible in light of not me and my world, but God in his work. Then I can understand my world. So until we meet again, read your Bible and do you good.